Welcome to the Public Morality. On August 4th, PBS will air Statecraft, the Bush 41 team. It reflects on the pillars and strategies of American diplomacy at the end of the Cold War when George H.W. Bush became President of the United States in 1989, much of the world was in turmoil. And it was clear that American diplomacy was entering a new era under his leadership. I'm joined by one of his participants, Professor Barbara Perry. Professor Perry is Director of Presidential Studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, and she co-directs the Presidential Oral History Program. Professor Barbara Perry, welcome to the Public Morality. Great to be with you, Byron. Glad to have you back. And, and, and let's begin um, with this, uh, what I consider an important documentary, given the time and space that we're in. Let's begin with the title, Statecraft. What is the significance of that title to this uh, effort? I think it is very, very significant, and it means a lot. You know, sometimes titles are just prosaic, and they just tell you what the topic is. But this is very meaningful, because I actually looked up statecraft, and its very basic definition is the skillful management of foreign affairs or foreign policy. And you can say what you wish about strengths and weaknesses of, of the Bush team or the Bush foreign policy, but it certainly was skillful. And I also think that it has become a, a, an actual school of study in political science and public administration that looks at uh, the strategic choices uh, that are made by our leaders in uh, affairs of state, that is foreign policy and, and foreign affairs. And this was the other thing that I think that the Bush 41 team got so right, and that was that they had a strategy. They had, a, they had skillful people, they were diplomatic, uh, they were deliberative, and they came up with strategy and tactics that, that generally worked as we look back now to the recent history. Now, staying on that thread, Given that it's been almost 30 years since the presidency of George H.W. Bush concluded, um, from your perspective, what is the minimum amount of time necessary to, to judiciously uh, examine a presidential administration? Hmm, that's an interesting question that I hadn't quite thought of. Sort of like, when, when does history become history? Um, so I've, I'm not really sure what the answer to that would be, but I would say... It's probably never too soon to begin to analyze uh, a president and a presidency. That is that I think in real time we need to, as voters, we need to be analyzing, especially mm -hmm. as we're coming up now, for example, to mm -hmm. uh, the possible reelection of an incumbent president. Uh, but once a president leaves office, um, I think that's really what, what you're probably getting at is that you start right away, as we do at the Miller Center, taking oral histories. That is, we consider it history as soon as a president goes out of office, and we want to get not necessarily the real-time aspects. We have that in our, our tape recordings that, that we look at at the Miller Center, of particularly Kennedy, Nixon, and Johnson, where you're hearing real-time decisions being made in the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example. But then the kind of the next cut at that is, is our oral histories, whereas people come out of office and within that first 10 years out of office, we are getting their, their memories. And so that's going to form part of the historical look back. And then I would say it's probably in that period you just said, three decades, sort of two to three decades, that we can get perspective. We can get the white heat of politics out of the way. 
and as historians and political scientists, we can begin to see how has that shaped out over 20, 30 years after the fact. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm gonna, uh, we're going to talk uh, about some of the specifics, but I want to talk about some of the nuance that the documentary uh, points out, uh, and then we'll move with some major issues. But I was personally struck by, um, we'll just call him 41 for this conversation. I was struck by 41's leadership style. I mean, the, the notion of calling world leaders when he didn't have an ask, when he just called to check in. Um, I'm wondering, is that kind of relationship cultivating is that, is that something of the past? Is, is that just a bygone era, or is that uh, something we can recapture going forward? I think it could be recaptured, but I think part of it is just the change in technology. Uh, I, I remember it being a big deal, even in, in my graduate school days in the 1980s, um, because my parents were the greatest generation and had come from working-class backgrounds. And they didn't make long distance calls. And they would say, you know, when we were coming along in the 30s and 40s, you only had a long distance call maybe if there was a death in the family. And of course, people use telegrams in those instances. During World War II, for example, my parents in their scrapbooks kept their most meaningful telegrams. Uh, So some of it is changing technology, but some of it is too, I think that generation um, was they were just in in 41's case he was gentlemanly you know he would reach out to people he would write lovely notes to people Ted Kennedy would do that I had learned that from his mother you write out thank you notes so some of it is that um, but also remember that Bush 41 had been vice president for eight years before he became president and he would make uh, a joke about the fact that Sometimes it was the vice president who would get sent to, not that the subject matter was a joke, but he would get sent to the funerals around the world. If the president couldn't go, he would deputize the vice president to go and represent the United States. So Bush, again, not making light of someone's passing, but but would sort of be self-deprecating about being vice president. He would say, you die, I fly. But what happened was he was able to meet up with the incoming heads of state around the world. So he had already developed a lot of uh, relationships with these people. And before he was vice president, he was our envoy to China. He was head of the CIA. So he had this sterling resume coming into office and already knew a lot of these people. So it didn't seem odd that the president of the United States would call because a lot of these people already knew him. I think it's fair to say, I remember back in what, 2016 at the Democratic Convention, uh, President Barack Obama made the comment that no one is more qualified to be president than Hillary Clinton, who, is, who's, who was seeking the office. I, you know, I'm not taking a, a yay or nay on that, but I think we could certainly put um, a 41 in that category of most qualified to be president based on their previous resume. He would certainly be on the short list, wouldn't you agree? Oh, gosh, I would put him at near the top of the list. And I think my colleague Russell Riley makes that point in one of the early interviews in this uh, biographical and, and statecraft-oriented documentary that uh, we, we do like to point out that that's not always uh, as key to success. So, for example, James Buchanan had a sterling resume <laughs> coming into office and is usually put pretty far down in terms of successful presidents because the, the union broke up just after he left office and we went into civil war. But, no, I, I think with uh, Bush, it, it, you know, it starts with his World War II experience. He's a genuine hero in World War II. Uh, He goes into the House of Representatives. He serves at the head of the party, the 
the national uh, GOP uh, in time of Watergate. As I had had mentioned, he was head of CIA, our envoy to China, ambassador to the UN, and then for eight years, vice president. So you cannot get a better resume. And I think it served him well. And it certainly served the country well and the world. You know, one of the things uh, that I have, uh, my words, uh, that I, I believe that presidents are remembered for foreign policy accomplishments, but they're rewarded for domestic achievements, i.e. the state of the economy. That's sort of how I frame it. Uh, foreign policy achievements oftentimes occur in the second term, and the matter that the documentary was presented, this was a one-term administration that felt in many respects to me as if they were operating in a second term, and I wonder what were your thoughts about that? Right. Well, I say it would depend on, for example, how we look at a president and not just remember them, but also lionize them sometimes for their foreign policy successes. FDR in World War II would, would be a really good example of that, of helping to save, save us in the free world and, and save democracy. Uh, so, so sometimes they are, they are indeed sa- you know, sanctified and, and beatified and canonized, mm-hmm. if I can use all my Catholic terms, uh, for how we look back at presidents and foreign policy. Um, I, I mentioned to you in our, our, our pre-call emails that I think that a lot of people saw Bush 41, for, for good or ill, in terms of how they viewed him, uh, as the third term of Ronald Reagan. Because Ronald Reagan was one of those presidents, along with, uh, for example, Eisenhower, uh, Bill Clinton, who were so popular, at least in their approval ratings, as they came to the end of the second term, that if there hadn't been the 22nd Amendment uh, banning them for running for a third term, they probably could have run and won a third term. So again, for good, I think a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans thought that the George Bush uh, administration would be that third term for Reagan. Where it worked against him was that he was not a a Reagan conservative. He was more moderate conservative than Reagan. So that sometimes worked against him. But I, I don't think that the foreign policy team thought they were working as if they wouldn't get a second term. I think they thought they would get a second term and the economy turned sour and and that probably prevented them from doing so. But I think they saw themselves as carrying out the end of the Cold War as not only started by Ronald Reagan, but obviously all the Cold War presidents had a role to play in that, but that they were going to carry that out. And then most important, and I think this is what the documentary shows to, to such success, what they did after the Cold War was ending with how Bush handled the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the breakup of the Soviet satellites in Eastern Europe, uh, as well as the reunification of Germany. Well, you, you touched on it. Talk about the 44-year geopolitical tension um, known as the Cold War, its impact on U.S., I would say foreign and domestic policy, if you would. Give, give us a, a brief, what, you know, why is that so significant time period for us? Oh, absolutely, absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. And when I teach about these eras uh, for students, and I teach a lot of teachers around the country through the Gilder Lehrman Institute, uh, we talk about like, the Kennedy era. We talk about Eisenhower and Johnson and Nixon and, and how caught up in the Cold War that era was. And you're so right to say it wasn't just foreign policy or defense policy fighting the Cold War. Sometimes it would break into hot wars, obviously, in Korea, Vietnam, and other places around the world. But it had such an impact on our politics sometimes to the good, so that we had what was called a Cold War consensus. And it didn't mean that 
we were all sitting together singing kumbaya across the, the political or ideological aisles, or you had even the Republican split between the isolationist of Robert Taft in the 1950s and a more international approach of Dwight Eisenhower. But there was a sense, because it was correct, that we had a common enemy. And of course, that begins to break down with the Vietnam War and then obviously the end of the Cold War itself. So in some ways, it could be good in that we had a common enemy and there was more, in some ways, more unity. But where it got really bad for domestic politics would be in things like the McCarthy period. So right after World War II and we get into 47, 48, and the fear now turns from fascism uh, of the Japanese Empire, Germany, and Italy, we have vanquished them, but the fear now turns, quite understandably, to communism. And we have, I just was writing the other day in a new book that I'm doing about um, the loyalty oath that was an executive order from Harry Truman that people in federal government would have to take a loyalty oath to the United States. And, you know, most people could say, well, you know, that makes sense. If you're going to work for the federal government, you should say you're loyal to it. But it also ended up uh, that many, many people were investigated, for example, is simply because they belonged to a labor union or they had participated in a strike, which they had every right to do uh, under the Fair Labor uh, Standards uh, you know, administration started in the 1930s. So uh, there was a lot of red baiting, a lot of uh, the second red scare that we had gone through. We went through one after World War One, and then McCarthy's tactics, you know, just impugning people, ruining people's careers from Hollywood to academe to journalism to labor unions, uh, ruining people's careers simply by accusing them of being communist or at one time having been a communist. And so what happens to freedom of expression or freedom of thought when you get into a situation like that? And that had a huge impact on our domestic politics. I, I was also thinking about, um, when you said that, I was also thinking about Kennedy going to Berlin, touting the virtues of freedom while you had the streets of Birmingham with fire hoses and police dogs. And so a, a paradoxical message that was, in some regards, embarrassing to the Kennedy administration. Oh, for sure. And uh, I mean, I do love that speech. I love the Berlin speech. I love when he says democracy isn't perfect, but we've never had to put up a wall to keep our people in. Now, he then comes back from that speech in the summer of 1963, he's seen what goes on in Birmingham. He has just gone through the, the literally riotous period of the previous summer trying to integrate with James Meredith per the government and the judiciary's orders to integrate the University of Mississippi. Now he's stuck in the summer of 1963 trying to integrate the University of Alabama over George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse gate, so to speak, or the schoolhouse door. And so what he does is that he, he begins to move out of that moderate approach he has taken to civil rights uh, from the 1950s into his presidency for fear that if he didn't, by the way, FDR did the same, fear that they would lose the southern wing of their party and they wouldn't get anything else through Congress if they pushed hard on civil rights. But Kennedy changes and that speech that he gives in June of 1963 goes on national television in prime time in a short but very compelling speech, says that civil rights is a moral question. It's a moral issue. It's as, he says it's as old as the scriptures and as clear as our Constitution. And with that, he and his brother Bobby, the attorney general, send up to the hill the, what would become the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was to integrate public 
public services, but but really private businesses that couldn't be touched by the 14th Amendment because that Equal Protection Clause only applied to state institutions. So via the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, the Congress was able to pass through, thank goodness, Lyndon Johnson, the 64 Civil Rights Act that then integrates restaurants and businesses and movie theaters and department stores and lunch counters and everything that had been fought for up to that point. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Barbara Perry. Uh, Professor Perry is Director of Presidential Studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, where she co-directs the Presidential Oral History Program. And she is featured in the upcoming documentary, Statecraft, the Bush 41 team, which is scheduled to air nationally at 10 p.m. on August the 4th on PBS. Uh, Professor Perry, how should we view uh, President Bush at the end of the Cold War that, that, that acknowledges his contributions without limiting the contributions of his predecessors to, for the United States to win the Cold War? Well, I mentioned a, a team effort. Uh, that is that all the presidents from the end of the war onward, end of World War II onward, uh, Democrats and Republicans with with an internationalist approach through the UN, through uh, NATO, through the Marshall Plan, through the Truman Doctrine, uh, that that they were all pulling for the same goal. And that was to bring freedom around the world, at least as we see freedom and democracy. Uh, Because you could make a case that communism in theory was meant to grant equality to people, uh, you know, end capitalism and end the capitalist, uh, you know, uh, overcoming of the proletariat. But we know in practice it was very, very, and still is to this day, uh, very authoritarian and often bent towards dictatorship and actually taking away most of the rights of the people. Uh, without really increasing their state of uh, economy to to that extent, maybe giving them a somewhat better life in Russia, for example, than they had over uh, you know when they had a czar, but uh, you know not really giving them all the freedoms that we value. Uh, and so I think you can give all of the presidents credit towards that, uh, and then give. George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, credit for sort of tying it up in a bow, not only bringing the Cold War to an end, but knowing how to handle that end. And so they they make, uh, I think, quite a good point in this documentary about when the Berlin Wall falls and the advisors to President Bush are saying, go to Berlin, you know, go go in triumph for the United States and the free world. And he said, no, that, he said, what would I do, dance on the wall? He said, that would really rub the nose of Gorbachev uh, in his, uh, in, in the collapse of the Soviet Union. So he knew as a person that would not be good. And he knew as a leader, as a foreign policy expert, that that would not be the diplomatic thing to do. And so he needs to be given credit for that too. Because as James Baker points out, it was never a foregone conclusion that the Cold War would end in peace or that the Soviet Union and its empire would collapse peacefully. And that, and as he also points out, no empire had ever ended that way. You, you know, one of the things that fascinates me, um, the way I look at history, I, I tend to make connections. I, I try to make connections with, with, with presidential administrations, and, and you know, a couple, uh, there'll be a couple more I'm going to bring up as we continue to talk. But when, when the point you just made when he said, you know, don't, what would I do, dance on 
the wall. It reminded me, again, a Cold War story with Kennedy vis-a-vis the Cuban Missile Crisis not doing a dance to publicly humiliate Khrushchev. So I, I guess where I'm going is these presidents sort of, they were internationals, and they really understood what that meant and, and where to draw the line and where to hold back. Yes, and that is so important that you're noting that because I think it's it's not only a part of this statecraft of uh, deliberation and diplomacy and, and having a strategic vision, but it's also being a human being. It's having empathy. It's having understanding of your opponent. Uh, and so, the, so Kennedy, in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis, people may know the story of the two different communiques that came from Khrushchev to Kennedy and his team in the midst of the crisis before we knew that it would end peacefully. And the first communique seemed to be pretty open to what the U.S. was demanding in terms of removing the missiles from Cuba. But then the sec- while they were just getting ready to respond, that second communique comes, and it, it's much more aggressive and, and much nastier towards the United States. And, and, the, and Kennedy and his advisors think, oh my gosh, has Khrushchev been removed in a coup by the war hawks in the Kremlin? So by understanding the politics of the Soviet Union and Khrushchev himself, Kennedy had had a summit meeting with him in Vienna in 1961. It hadn't gone well. Uh, he was really, Kennedy was really overcome by, by Khrushchev, but at least they had had that meeting. And, and at least Kennedy and his advisors had this sort of empathy for what Khrushchev was facing, or at least an understanding of what he was facing. And that stood them in good stead. And it certainly did for Bush 41 and Gorbachev uh, as the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union collapsed. And of course, Khrushchev lost his job. You know, he well, had to right? resign. 64, when Khrushchev was out and, and the Soviet Union falls and Gorbachev is out soon after. So they, they have a sense of history. Yes, absolutely so. That well, and clearly Kennedy, who had written history himself, he had won the Pulitzer Prize for his book Profiles and Courage, uh, and certainly George H.W. Uh, Bush was well schooled in history. And again, because he had been in in World War II in the Pacific, had been shot down, uh, he knew what it was like to be in war, uh, as did Kennedy. Uh, Kennedy too, in the South Pacific, almost lost his life. Uh, so these people did not take war or, you know, poking a stick in the eye of your opponent lightly. Um, uh, there was a time, since you, you mentioned the military background, that, that it was a prerequisite for our presidents to have a military background, sort of. That, that, and that's borne out, I believe, every president sent from Harry Truman to George H.W. Bush had a military background. And, and talk about specifically Bush's military background. You've alluded to it on several of your answers, but talk about how it was part of the preparation process that would allow him to be well-positioned for the Cold War finale. I, I think with all of these men, and, I, and many women, of course, who served as well in the military, and my, my own dad was a World War II veteran, served in the European theater in Italy, um, they... They served, they served willingly. Uh, and we should remember that up until Pearl Harbor, the thought of going to war from the perspective of Americans was not popular. There were many isolationists in that period in the 20s and the 30s because they had seen what had happened uh, to our people, but also what had happened, especially the devastation of Europe in World War One. So we were not eager to go into another world war. But after Pearl Harbor, that definitely changed. And so you had somebody like George H.W. Bush who was still in prep school. 
still, uh, you know, he was he was still a teenager uh, in in an Eastern prep school when Pearl Harbor happens. But people are coming to speak to the boys and saying, you know, now now we're all behind the country. We've got to serve. And so he goes he, he enlists in in the Navy and becomes among the youngest, if not the youngest naval aviator uh, serving at that time in World War II. And these these boys who all, especially the Kennedys uh, and, and the Bushes, for example, they were people that by that time of wealth, they had connections. They could have served at a desk job. Uh, in fact, Kennedy was assigned, because of his bad health and his bad back, he was assigned to a desk job in intelligence. And these boys volunteered for combat. They volunteered to go into combat. In the case of George Bush, became an aviator, was flying a bomber and on a bombing mission over at a little island in the South Pacific called Chichijima uh, in 1944 and was hit by flak and gave the order to uh, his two crew members in the back of the plane, bail out, bail out, we're, you know, we're, we're smoking, we're on fire. And he got out. And he wasn't able to save his two crew members. They died. Uh, but he, he got, gets out into the water and up pops a, a, a raft. And he jumps into the raft. He's, he's got all the seawater that he's, he's ingested. He's feeling sick. He's realizing the current is taking him into the Japanese-held island of Chichijima. So he starts paddling like mad. And thank goodness he was a, a good athlete. He was a star baseball player. Uh, and after two hours of this realizing his crew's gone, he's not knowing if he's going to be taken captive, he sees a periscope, doesn't know if it's Japanese or American, and as he says in the film, thank God it was American, it was the Finback, and they rescued him. But he never forgot that experience, and he never forgot those two men, his crew members he lost. Uh, is 41 this generation's Harry Truman. And, and what I mean by that, the Truman presidency lived largely under the shadow of FDR. And as you mentioned earlier, the Bush presidency lived largely under the shadow uh, of Ronald Reagan. And, and with that dispassionate distance that we talked about earlier, um, that allowed us to look at Truman differently, are we now looking at uh, 41 in, that, in a similar light? That's a really good parallel, uh, Byron. I hadn't thought of that, but I really like it. And I think you're absolutely on point. And the only difference would be is that it took longer. Uh, now, Harry Truman obviously got elected in his own right, although he almost lost that 48 campaign. As some people say, uh, Thomas Dewey snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, so Truman just came on strong at the very end. Um, and won that. But he went out of office about as unpopular as Richard Nixon. And that's that's pretty hard to, <laughs> to equal that. So they were both in the 20 percent range, you know, sort of 20 to 25 percent range of unpopularity uh, when when they left office. And it took a longer time for Harry Truman to come back into the public consciousness in a positive way. And it was in the early 1970s, just about the time he died. And we were in the Nixon era and going into Watergate. Uh, and some people might remember the, the band Chicago. They had a song called America Needs You, Harry Truman. Uh, Harry, won't you come back home? Uh, and there was also a, a oral history oral history book put out called uh, Plain Speaking. Uh, so an oral history of Harry Truman put out about the time he died. And it really helped him to rise up into the ranks of 
uh, near great presidents. For Bush 41, it happened much more quickly. It actually happened between his defeat in his re-election campaign in 92 and the inauguration of Bill Clinton, January 20th, 1993. Bush 41 got only about 36% of the popular vote in that three-way race among Bill Clinton, Ross Perot, and himself. But by the time he went out of office, uh, uh, you know, just a mere few months later, he was already back above 50%, almost a 56% approval rating. So we don't know whether it was some kind of buyer's remorse on the part of the people or, again, the economy that it was already turning around. But people already had a much better sense of Bush 41 within a few months of his defeat. And it only continued to rise. And I think you saw with his funeral a couple of years ago, uh, just how much affection and admiration the American people and the world have for George H.W. Bush. Hmm. Now, though the, doc, the documentary focuses on the Bush 41 team and, and the stellar foreign policy, uh, depending on how you look at it, uh, it doesn't mention um, that President Bush led a Republican Party that in many respects was different from who he was at his core. In 1980, he famously called supply-side ec economics voodoo economics, but then by the, what, 88 GOP convention, he gave his Read My Lips No New Taxes pledge. Uh, uh, but, but, uh, but when he raised taxes, as did Reagan, it was sort of proof that he wasn't one of them. Talk about that sort of hanging over Bush that may have been in some respects his undoing in the 1992 election. Yes, and I think, as you were mentioning before, he did operate in the shadow of Ronald Reagan, and that's that's pretty hard to do when you are following uh, what's called uh, in our business the, a transformative president, as FDR had been. So for poor Harry Truman, and pe pe people barely knew Harry Truman. He was a senator from Missouri when he was made vice president. He'd only been vice president for two or three months, and Roosevelt died. So it's really hard to follow a president not only who is popular, but who goes on to be considered a great president, a transformative president. And then when you add the politics of your party to it, so that you have Bush 41 as, a, as even though he made his career in Texas, you know, moved from Connecticut to Texas, uh, he really was the, the old-fashioned, now we view them as old-fashioned, northeastern, moderate Republican, as his father, Prescott Bush, this, the senator from Connecticut, had been. And that was just out of favor uh, and out of the party by the time he was president. So it would have been bad enough that the Reaganites would have had their skepticism about him. But when he had to renege on his promise, as you say, at the 88 convention of quoting Clint Eastwood, read my lips, no new taxes. And he, he went on from that to say to the, the, Demo the Democrats in the Congress will press me to raise taxes and I'll say no. And they'll press me again and I'll say no. But when they pressed him, he had to say yes. Uh, and it was wise for him to say, say yes, because one of his achievements is to get closer to a balanced budget by, yes, the compromise was for the Democrats to cut some spending, but for the Republicans to raise taxes. And so it was a good thing that he did, um, but he really took hell for it among the, the Reaganite wing of the party, which was not even a wing anymore. It was the party. We'll have to, we'll have, to have you back on to just talk about that, because because that whole dynamic and looking at where we are now couldn't make for an interesting conversation on, on its own. Uh you know, here, here I go again with no, another one of my analogies, uh, leadership analogies. But 
from the outside uh, looking in, if you may say if you were from another country looking at the, the, the Bush 41 team, factoring in the, the foreign policy achievements, the end of the Cold War, um, you know, de- desert with Desert Storm. You have domestic accomplishments with the uh, the Clean Air Act, um, the uh, uh, ADA. He put two people on the Supreme Court. He balanced the budget. He had the 1990 Immigration Act. I couldn't imagine that passing today. Um, no, and he did that with Ted Kennedy. Right, right. I mean, even more so, you couldn't pass that. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine Donald Trump doing that with Nancy Pelosi. That would never happen. So, <laughs> but, but, but looking from... From the outside, it might it might appear it's almost as if to me that him not getting a second term, given his record, I compare him to Winston Churchill in the sense that in May of 1945, looking out, you would have said this guy could be prime minister as long as he chooses, and then by July of 45, he's out. And so I, I sort of see Bush in a similar light, and then you sort of look back and go, well, he wasn't as bad as maybe we thought he was. And I wondered how you saw that. Well, I, th- I think that as that's a truism, that people look back and say, well, he wasn't as bad as we thought, and if <laughs> Churchill got another chance, of course, to, to serve. Um, I, my colleague, Russell Riley, who co-chairs the oral history program with me, is writing a book currently on... Um, what he calls American regicide. <laughs> and he says that after wars, Americans very quickly pivot to wanting peace and they want to take away from the president the power that has accrued to him by virtue of serving at the time of war. Um, so I think Harry Truman falls prey to that. And and you could say the Cold War, that your your analysis of this aftermath of the Cold War also has an impact, I think, on how people view the presidency and the president who happens to serve at the end of that war, as it happened with Churchill, too. And I think it's also the attempt of, of the people, whether it's the British electorate or the American electorate, to put that war behind them and move on into something different. But I also think you have to take into consideration that what, what we've said already, that the party was turning against him, that the economy was turning south, that he was viewed as being removed from the average person. And you have somebody like Bill Clinton who feels everybody's pain. And in the debates, uh, you, you catch, uh, ac- you know, accidentally, there's this catch of Bush looking at his watch, which was actually about how long Ross Perot was going on with his answer. It wasn't that he was you know, wanting to get off the stage, but he, he got that reputation of being removed from the people. Uh, and so th- that in the combination of having Ross Perot in that race uh, is all all that came together to take him down. So there was this unusual mix, I think, of factors that didn't have anything to do with the actually the great man he was and probably should be viewed in some ways as a near great president. Well, on, on that note, there, there is a moment in the documentary that if you are a student of politics, um, I don't care how blue you are, how red you are. When he's talking to Congress, and he talks about um, them doing Desert Storm, that they've captured some Iraqi soldiers. And the Iraqi soldiers are, are worried. And the, 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 the American soldiers are like, you know, that's okay. You're, you're okay. We're not, we're not, we're not going to uh, torture you. And then he goes on to say, that's who we are. We're, you know, we're good people. I mean, how does that not move you? I don't care what your politics are. How does that not move you? 
Oh, I so agree. And I, when we were doing, um, and Lori Shinseki, who produced this film so brilliantly with our team at the Miller Center, um, Sheila Blackford was uh, is our librarian, and she worked on this, and Woody Sherman, and uh, so many others. They just all just poured their heart and soul into it. But it's the heart and soul of this film, is that, yeah, I mean, I'm patriotic. I think our country's good. As Kennedy said, democracy's not perfect. We're not perfect. But when Bush says that to Congress, his voice breaks. He becomes emotional. And in the film, you he's talking about a clip that he says people have seen on TV. You see it in the film. You see the American soldier holding out his hand and calming these Iraqis and saying, it's okay, it's okay. And, and I do believe that that's at the far end of the spectrum, that's the goodness of America. Again, we're not perfect, but it's the goodness of America. And the way I see it is part of the reason that George Bush became emotional is not only is that he and I, I'm emotional about my patriotism, but I'm, I'm emotional for George Bush because he had to be thinking back to that raft, that if that current had taken him into Chichijima, he was going to be captured by the Japanese and he was probably going to be tortured and possibly killed. Finally, say just a word, if you would, about the, the, the creation of this project and, 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 and the creativity of, of, of this documentary. Oh, as I say, with, with Lori and Sheila and, and Mike and, and Woody and just everybody who contributed to it at the Miller Center, um, it's just a piece of, of art. It's an artwork. I hope people will view it not only for the content and the information that it imparts, but what I love about it is that it begins with our oral histories that we did, for example, of Dick Cheney uh, after uh, the Bush 41 administration, where he talked about how this was the A-plus foreign policy team of all presidencies, and yet they had not worked together as a full team until the Panama crisis in the early years and early days of the Bush 41 administration. And so he said, you know, we weren't perfect and we didn't get it right, but we got better as we got more experience working together as a team. So it starts with oral histories that are done 20, 30 years ago. And then it's, it talks to these people, to your original point, 30 years later about how they look back at history. And the, the artistic elements of Lori Shinseki's use of pictures from when they were in the administration, pictures now using contact sheets, for example, also candid, candid shots of them as they were taking pictures of them currently, but continuing to roll the video camera. So you get Dick Cheney talking about going to fish the next day and how he's going to catch trout. And the photographer says, oh, which are better to eat, brown trout or rainbow trout? And he, he just smiles, that crooked smile of his, and he says, oh, we don't eat them. We throw them back. Um, you know, it's just, it's these human moments. Or, or Jim Baker going to a piece of the Berlin Wall at Rice University in a candid moment and reading out the plaque that's there about his role and about George Bush's role. It's just very moving. And even the timeline is done very cleverly with a, a band that runs across the, street, the, the screen and then it kind of clicks on it like a computer. It's all just very well done. It's not just talking heads and, and old archival footage. Statecraft, the Bush 41 team, uh, airs on PBS at 10 o'clock on August the 4th. Uh, our guest who was uh Included in the film has been Professor Barbara Perry. We want to thank you once again for joining us on The Public Morality. Much appreciated. 
Oh, always happy to be with you, Byron, and what great insights you have, and, and thank you for talking about this film. We're very proud of it. I want to thank again today's guest, Professor Barbara Perry. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And this is the final broadcast for this season. The public morality will return in September with more thought-provoking programs. Until then, in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come in different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams.